Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Hello, my name is Jackie B, filling in for Beth AQ. I would like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to Elders past and present. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today on the show, I have two interviews lined up for you. Matt O'Kine will join me on the phone to chat about his debut novel, Bean Black and Chicken and Chips, which has been uh, recently been adapted for a teen audience. A little later on, Ty Staith will join me uh, also on the phone to, da- to chat about her podcast and exhibition, A World of One's Own, currently showing at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. Mike Eamon just wants to fit in. He wants to be a star athlete. He wants his dad to stop embarrassing him. He wants his first kiss. He also wants his mum to survive. When his mum is diagnosed with advanced cancer, Mike figures if he gets his own life right and makes his mum proud, maybe it'll be enough to help her get better. Being in Black and Chicken and Chips is Matt O'Kine's debut novel, first published in 2019 with Hatchet Australia. This year, it has been adapted for teen audiences by Lothian Children's Books. Soon to be a major motion picture, Bean Black and Chicken and Chips has been described as a semi-autobiographical novel. Matt O'Kine is a writer and presenter. He is also an award-winning comedian who has spent the last 15 years performing on screens and stages nationally. He spent three years hosting Triple J's morning breakfast show before entering the world of television production. In 2017, the first season of The Other Guy aired on Stan. The Other Guy is based on Matt's award-winning stand-up show. In 2019, the second season was released. Bean Black and Chicken and Chips is Matt's debut novel. Thank you so much for joining me on the phone today. Thanks for having me, Jackie. I'm excited. Yeah, so uh, Bean Black and Chicken and Chips is based on your stand-up live show, which earned you a Best Newcomer Award at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in 2012. Can you talk us through your process in adapting this stand-up show into a novel? Yeah, I mean, I guess, look, there's probably selfish reasons to begin with. Um, I couldn't adapt it into a TV show because I can't, uh, I wasn't going to be allowed to play a 12-year-old version of me, so... um, (laughs) <laughs> so I, uh, I thought I'd go for the book version as, instead. Mm. Um, no, nah, look, it was, it's always a dream to write a book, you know. It's, it's one of those life challenges that you kind of, you know, you, you, I didn't do it for any reason other than to, to, tell, to, to, to put this story, tell this story, uh, or I guess eternalise this story, you know. One of, the, one of the worst things about doing a stand-up show is you do this show and then, then it's just gone, you know? It doesn't mm. exist anymore. And it's always such a shame, you know, because it's it's not like it stops becoming relevant just because you stop getting on stages. It's just it's just you can't go around the world telling it all all the time. So when the opportunity came to write a book, you know, I remember my book agent at the time said, 
is there anything that you would want to write a book about? And, you know, the death of my mum when I was 12 is probably, well, certainly the most defining kind of event in my in my childhood and certainly in my life. And it was a story that I felt like um, was an important one to tell for so many other people who might be struggling with grief or um, the loss of a loved one, you know, at any age. Mm, definitely. And the novel was just adapted for teen audiences this year. Can you talk us through that sort of process? And was there anything that sort of needed to be cut out to make it a bit more appropriate for a teen audience? Yeah, look, that's really what had to happen. Uh, <laughs> my character is 12 years old um, and he's, in his, you know, his, the exploration of of his understandings of sex and his body and what's happening to, you know, how his body is changing and stuff is very much at the forefront of his mind, as I'm sure it is for a lot of, you know, people who just start high school and are realising that, you know, this big bad world that's out there. So there was certainly some... Some, um, let's just say that the moments are still there, but they're probably not as graphic, mm. um, not quite <laughs> as detailed. It's not quite, you know, the warts and all. It's, um, it's, it's, yeah, definitely less warts. Yeah. Um, and what was sort of your motivation in adapting the novel for a teen audience and why Lothian children's books? Look, I just I just didn't want younger people to miss out, you know, on, on this story because it's so impacting for them and and the younger people who did happen to come across it you know whether it was given to them by a parent or anything they, they just love it but there are certain things for instance when you release an adult book and this is all very technical and and boring but the size the size of the book changes the price point of a book changes um and there was things like that, plus the plus sort of some of the graphic content uh, nature of it, or explicit nature, um, meant that younger people weren't able to access it in you know places like schools and children's libraries, etc. Mm. So uh, we wanted to make sure that it was appropriate and they could actually get it because it is such a important book for young people, not just because, you know, not just young people who are dealing with grief or tragedy, but just young people who are trying to understand what the heck they're supposed to be doing in their life. Mm. Uh, I was really curious about the main character, Mike Eamon. How autobiographical is this character? Um, well, I mean, I didn't put certain body parts in parts of my dad's dental van, if that's um, <laughs> what you're wondering. Um, you know, there, there's certainly moments here that the mic in the book does some, you know, pretty silly things. Uh, and, you know, not everything in the book happened to me. Um, the, certainly the, the experience around Mike's mother, um, the, those are really paralleled. Um, but there's a lot of fun in the book as well. There's a lot of humour. There's a lot of silliness, and it's really just a, a roller coaster ride of, of ups and downs. So I never really, I was never really trying to write a book that was about me or my life. More just like most people do, or most writers do. I wanted to write a book that was informed by my experiences. Mm. Um, and just sort of touching on the humour and the silliness that you brought up there, um, I thought you expertly navigated these themes of heartbreak and friendship and love, um, and your book has this perfect balance of humour and grief. 
there's a quote from your novel, um, I wanted to laugh, I did, but God made humans with a laugh and cry buttons right next to each other, and I couldn't trust my aim on a day like this. In the last 15 years as a comedian, has your approach to humour and grief changed, and did you approach these themes differently in the process of writing a novel? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've always sort of approached grief from, with an angle of humour, and it's not necessarily the right way to do it. Um, there's no right way or wrong way, really, um, except for maybe not acknowledging it at all um, when it comes to grief. But I, I've i always kind of used humour to, to deal with difficult situations. And, and like I said, sometimes that's not the right way to do it, but it's just my natural reaction. Um, I remember... When my, the, you know, the day that my mum had died, I was driving home from the hospital in a car with my friend, and it was actually Good Friday. And I remember saying, oh, well, at least it's Good Friday, which means she'll come back in two days, you know. Mm. Um, and for me, that was a joke, you know, and I knew that that was a joke and that was not going to happen. But it's kind of, it was just a joke to try to help me deal with the situation. Um, that joke bombed on the day, might I add. Um mm. You know, not, no one else laughed at that joke. Yeah. Um, but that was just the that was just the response. That was all I had. You know, that was all I had to deal with. What was such a you know life changing experience, and I, I didn't have the mental capacity to to understand what was really going on. So Mike uses that humour and um, you know that make coping mechanism throughout the whole book, uh, as so many people do in our lives. I, mean, I remember I went and visited a hospital, a friend in hospital once, and I. I couldn't help laugh, and that was—it's terrible, you know. It's not the, the, the person was like, "Why are you laughing? This isn't funny." And I'm like, "I, I know it's not funny. I just don't know what. I just don't. This is my body. It, it, you know, mm. I laugh when I'm supposed to be crying. That's just what I do. So, um, yeah, that, Mike certainly has that kind of same defense mechanism, and uh, yeah, sometimes it's to you know his charm, and sometimes it's certainly to his detriment. Mm. Um, I was sort of thinking of Mike's relationship with his father and his father's cultural heritage. Um, Mike, throughout the book, just wants to fit in, uh, and he observes his father's African clothes, food and accent with a sense of sort of otherness in quotes and is quite self-conscious of the way that his friends might perceive his father. Um, I was wondering how closely does this reflect sort of your own childhood and your own experiences with your dad and in the process of writing your stand-up and in writing this book did your relationship with your father and your father's cultural heritage or your own identity sort of shift or change oh yeah look I mean you know when you're a kid all you really want to do is fit in and certainly growing up half African in, in 90s Queensland you know there wasn't there wasn't a whole bunch of other black people around, you know, African people that I, you know, was around. Um, and so there was always that sort of striving to, to fit in, to be, you know, just like all the other white kids and, you know, and there was a rejection of, of my dad's culture and, you know, the clothes, the food, that, that's certainly thing. And it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's embarrassing, you know, now when I think about that, because it's such a, it's such a rich culture. There's so many interesting elements to it. There's so much I could learn from it. Uh, and from him, um, and it's taken me so long to to get to distance myself from that cultural um, shame, really, and and to embrace it more. And that's kind of another reason why I want younger people to to read the book because that's when they're most affected by that kind of rejection of culture. 
um, by the, the desperation of wanting to fit in and be just like all the other kids. So, yeah, I mean, th- th- those, there is, there's certainly parallels in those worlds as well. Mm. Yeah, and I just sort of wanted to thank you for sort of um, exploring that in your book as well. Uh, I'm half Indian and I grew up in a sort of bit more of a regional area and I didn't really see all that many sort of stories or narratives that kind of reflected my own. So I just wanted to quickly say thank you for for um, including that in your book. Um, but I just wanted to move now to um, the way that the book is going to be uh soon be a major motion picture. Uh, Could you give it your experience with the other guy in television production? I was wondering how involved were you in this project? Well, I mean, I'm I'm writing it now, you know, so Mm. I'm certainly going to be very involved with it. And and my my involvement through this, through, through adapting this book will be from the very beginning right to the, you know, the moment I'm sitting on my couch pressing play. Um, I mean, making TV is a completely different beast to, well, and, you know, making TV and film is a completely different beast to writing a book. So thankfully I wrote the book with the, with the, um, you know, with the film in mind. That was always the goal from the get-go. And so, you know, what happens when you're trying to make TV is it's kind of, the best thing about a book is anything can happen. You know, mm. you can you can set a scene uh, and it's the Olympic Games and there's 100,000 people screaming from the stadiums and suddenly there's an explosion and, and, then, and then it starts, um, you know, rockets start flying over the sky and leave trails of this be- beautiful, vibrant green stardust, you know. You, you can just, you can make all that happen in a book mm. and you put that in a TV show and you compare that with your budget and suddenly it's not, it's not at the Olympic Games um, and there's no rockets and there's no explosion and the whole conversation has to, has to actually happen in a chicken shop, you know? Mm. That's, like, that's kind of what happens when, you, when you're making TV. So when I was writing the book, I was like really adamant about making sure that this was something that could translate the screen and the story could be told just as effectively. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited. And, you know, the other thing as well, and this is something that's super exciting, and, and you know, if you, if you appreciated the cultural sort of uh, aspect of the storytelling, then, you know, you, you might feel the same about one of the biggest things that I'm excited about is, is casting a, a young, you know, 12 or 13 or however old the, the actor is, mm-hmm. um, you know, half-gun Aang kid to be the lead role in a in a Australian film. I just think that that's, that that opportunity is really awesome, and, and I'm really proud of the thought that, you know, if I was 12 years old and I got to see a, um, you know, a, a half brown person doing, um, you know, being the lead on a on a in a movie, an Australian movie, it would mm-hmm. just it would have filled me with a lot of, um, ambition and excitement for you know a potential future in the in the industry. So. Yeah, it's things like that, you know, finding an African actor to play the role of Marvin, Mike's dad in the book. Mm. Yeah, those things are what excite me about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, Our time's almost up, but I was wondering how can listeners keep up to date with you? Are you active on social media? I am active on social media, and that is a good thing and a bad thing. Um, so <laughs> you can go check out my Instagram. It's just at Matt O'Kine. Um, But, you know, buyer beware. That's what I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the phone today. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Jackie. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. My name is Jackie B, filling in for Beth AQ on The Glass House. A World of One's Own is a podcast series and exhibition currently showing at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. The title is a nod to Virginia Woolf's essay, A Room of One's Own. In her podcast, Ty conducts conversations with female-identifying artists whom she admires. The most recent series has been launched alongside an exhibition of the same name. Ty Snaith is an Australian writer and artist. Her practice ranges from painting and ceramics, conducting conversations and broadcasting. Triple R listeners may be familiar with Ty's reviews of visual arts on the program Smart Arts. Thank you so much for joining me on The Glass House today. My pleasure, Jackie. That's a, that's a mouthful of an intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know I've, given, I've just given a summary of your podcast series, but I'm sure listeners would much prefer it if you could explain in your own words what A World of One's Own is all about and your motivations behind creating the podcast. Well, I think actually it grew out of um, a need or a frustration that I had. Um, I, I got to a point in my practice where I was really seeking um, advice from other mainly older female artists just about how they did it and um, I got to a point where I was kind of like organising coffee dates and doing all these sort of informal chats with people mm-hmm. that I looked up to um, because I think once you leave art school and you're sort of you know I've had children and you you do get a little bit isolated from the community that you were used to originally as an artist and I really wanted to um you know, just to just to have someone speak to me about how they did it and about the realities of what it takes to be a female artist. And so I started um, making, well, just meeting up with artists and then I thought these chats are so, you know, they're gold. They're just, they're like spoken gold. And then I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could record them? Mm-hmm. Um, and the opportunity arose through, uh, originally through ACCA, so speaking to Max Delaney about this idea and this sort of desire that I had to record these conversations. And then he um, coupled it with the Unfinished Business exhibition, which was back in 2017 at ACCA. Mm-hmm. And it was um, perspectives on feminism. So it was a really sort of interesting take on different generational ideas of feminism um, or feminisms, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they included this work as a kind of special commission um, digital project so you could access it online. And, of course, you know, ACCA has a lot of listeners so or followers. Um, so that was just a great starting point for it. And in that first series, I spoke to older women, so people from, you know, like people like um, Sally Smart and Patricia Piccinini and uh, Catherine Haddam and people that were from, you know, started practising back in the 60s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really just wanted to know how they did it, how they've sustained a career, how they got through, you know, the childbearing years, um, how they got through things like doubt, self, you know, self-doubt, self-care, like even just running, um, you know, how they paid for it, how, how they managed to do all these things, like have a life and have a practice that, that kept going, not just in their 20s. Um, so that's where it started, I guess, mm. my curiosity, really. Um, and in some ways, desperation. I think there's a there's a point where you get to mid-career where you've shown in all the artist-run spaces and, you know, maybe you want to just push it to the next level and you really just need mentors. So 
what I thought this could be is kind of like not just a mentor for me or people for me, but that I could share that experience with a, with a broader audience. Yeah, and the podcast is now in its third series, which has been commissioned by the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. Can you tell us um, a little bit about your process in adapting your podcast series into an exhibition? Yeah, so that's been really lovely, actually, to let the project grow um, into an exhibition because, as I mentioned, I am actually, first of all, a a practising visual artist. Um, So for me, audio has been something I've always done. I've been involved um, with Richard Watts' show on Triple R and I'm quite naturally a conversationalist, I guess you would say. Mm. But I did also want to try and bring it back to what it's about. So, you know, it's speaking to visual artists and I'm also a visual artist. So actually it began with um, Ballarat Gallery um, in 2019 asked me to have a show where I presented um, some of the audio from the second series and then also made a body of work inspired by those conversations. So it becomes this kind of like continual or continuing conversation um, and then is reflected in the manifested work, which I found extremely satisfying because, as you know, like anything that you read or listen to or speak, it informs, even if it's unconsciously, it informs what we make. Mm. And so it was lovely to like be given that space at Ballarat originally to make a body of work and then Danny, who is the director of Mornington Peninsula, had heard about that show and it had a really positive response and he'd spoken to the curators um, at Ballarat Gallery and they'd suggested maybe he could do a version of that. And so what his take on it was actually to commission me to not just represent these conversations but to look at their collection. So Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery have this great permanent collection that is often um, just in storage, you know. Mm. And so I basically got to look at the list of women artists that they had in their collection and then choose um, five that I wanted to feature and speak to. So it's kind of like this amazing opportunity for me because I get to speak to some of my idols like... um, people in their collection that maybe I wouldn't have had a connect, uh, been able to meet otherwise. So for me, it's, it's a great privilege as well. Um, so I, I chose from their collection um, Elizabeth Gower, who's an artist uh, from, who's been practising since the Women's Liberation Movement, and she's mm. a collage artist and painter. Um, Catherine Haddam, who was in my second series, and I represented that conversation because she's also in their collection. Deborah Kelly, who's an amazing collage artist um, and animator from Sydney, who I'd never met before. And this was a great chance for me to sort of like build a relationship there too. Uh, Fiona McMonagall, who's a watercolorist um, from Melbourne, uh, and she's got a few works in their collection. So it was great to sort of talk to her about the span of those works. And I, I also paint with watercolor, so completely identified with her journey. Um, Sally Smart, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, Lisa Waup, who's a local uh, Indigenous artist who has these really powerful work in the collection about her identity and actually started with Lisa. And I realised with Lisa's work, it was so strong and it was about identity. But then I sort of looked at the other artists artists I'd chosen as well and they were all kind of about this idea of how we represent identity. So that became almost like a curatorial um, theme throughout the group. Oh, and also Lily Mae Martin, I didn't mention her. So that was the mm. list of artists. And then I met with them um, actually in my home mainly and interviewed uh, – well, no, it's not really an interview. It's more just like a chat. Mm. Um, and I always start by talking about the work that is in the collection. So we start by sort of 
taking it apart. Artists are always comfortable to talk about how they've made something or their process and then that sort of warms them up uh, to talk about their life, um, their troubles. Uh, some people talked about mental illness. Some people talk about uh, how they manage child um, having children. Some people talk about more career-based stuff or identity-based stuff. And it really, it's, it's really just a kind of broad brush of what it is to be female identifying in a pretty male-dominated um, art world, really. Mm. Uh, what can listeners yeah. expect when they visit your exhibition? So the, so the actual exhibition, uh, it pairs the conversations I've had. So you, you basically can look at the artist's work from the collection, which has been taken out, put on back on display, but also added to those permanent works are a couple of new works that the artists have lent me. So it's, a, it's like a, a broadening of those um, permanent pieces. Mm. And then there's a whole series of works that I've made um, that were actually based on my dreams that I had during the process of having the conversation. So I guess mm. it's a slightly different take in that I also think that the way we um, we process things unconsciously is really powerful. Mm. So during that time where I was sifting through all this knowledge I was collecting, I was having these really intense dreams. And it was during COVID too, so I know a lot of people had really intense dreams yeah. during COVID. Yeah. Um, and I journaled them all and then I painted them all. And often I paint my dreams and then more work grows out of them uh, in an abstract way. but So I presented these three large paintings of dreams and then um, also a series of my notebooks and preparatory um, sketches and drawings in the cabinet. Um, and so each artist has their work on display, including mine. And then next to the artist's work, there's a QR code you can go directly to the conversation. So people go, they walk around, listen to the conversations while they're looking at the work um, or just look at the work and listen to the conversations later. So it's kind of nice. It's almost like an extended, um, you know, the little panels you get in the gallery to read about the artist's work. Well, it's like an extra 45 minutes of them actually talking about their work. Yeah, that sounds really great. Uh, And their lives. Yeah. If there was one takeaway that visitors of your exhibition are walked away with what would it be um I really I mean the one thing that struck me during this whole process and continues to um you know make itself clear to me is that even artists that you think are really sorted and have these amazing dazzling careers everyone I speak to um they have the same doubts we all have the same doubts that we're not um, known enough or that we're um, invisible or we have these doubts that we're not making enough or it's not good enough. And it doesn't matter whether you're speaking to Patricia Piccinini, who's one of the most famous artists, not just in our country, but in the world, mm. or even younger artists who have just started. We all share these similar doubts. And I think if there's one thing that people could take away is just that it's it's really common to, to feel these things and to, you know, really you just have to kind of keep moving through them and expressing them and talking about them. Mm. So that's that's really what the whole project is about. Yeah. Um, and if listeners wanted to uh, visit your exhibition, do they need to book or purchase tickets? No, there's no bookings needed. Um, if they wanted to get online and have a little bit a, more of a look um ask what it's about they can go to the mornington peninsula regional gallery website Mm -hmm. i think if you just google mprg it'll pop up um, and go to exhibitions and my exhibition is called a world of one's own and similarly you can follow the podcast um, if you search a world of one's own in apple podcasts or even just on my 
website or my social media, all of them link back to the podcast. So my name's Ty Snaith, which is T-A-I Snaith, S-N-A-I-T-H. And um, yeah, you can follow it in, in any way and it's all free. For people that go down to the beach on the weekends, it's kind of nice if it's rainy or even if it's sunny <laughs> to go to the gallery. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Were there any other ways that sort of listeners could keep up to date with you and your podcast series and any other upcoming exhibitions that you may have? Um, yeah, the best way is probably just through Instagram. So if, if they wanted to follow Ty Snaith on Instagram, I put everything up on there. And the podcast, um, I think once you subscribe to it, you get reminders when the new episodes are out. And mm. excitingly, I've just been asked by the gallery to extend it and to do another three conversations. So that's kind of nice. I thought it was finished, but they had such a strong response they want to do more. Yeah. So they, they will be launched um, in the next few months as well. And then I have a a solo show coming up at the end of the year um, in November. So I'm working towards that as well. And that will be at, at Heidi, actually. So I'm really excited about the rest of the year. Post-COVID, it's nice to kind of come out and actually be doing things and um, connecting with people again. So hopefully if anyone's interested, they're welcome to follow me and make contact and um, let me know what you think as well. If you listen to them and you agree or disagree, it's always nice to have people reach out and make contact. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me on the phone today. We're just about out of time, but it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for um, giving me the time. I'm usually talking about other people's work, so it's kind of weird to talk about my own work. But yeah, it's yeah, been, it's been nice hearing about your work. Um, Ty Snape, yeah. A World of One's Own, is now showing at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. You are listening to Triple R. Thank you to my two guests, Matt O'Kine and Ty Snaith, for chatting with me on the show today. This show has been The Glass House. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Jackie B. I've been filling in for Beth AQ, who will be back next week. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.